Hey, just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that we have a free advent guide available on my website. And by that, I mean we have an enormous, gorgeous, free, giant ebook thing if you want it. So it's something to help us ground our days in hope and love this Christmas season. So if that's something you want, go to katebowler.com slash advent and it's all yours. One of the weird things about trying to change is that sometimes nobody else wants to, not even a little bit at all. The holiday season could be a strange reminder of that because it's that time again when we get together with the people who might know exactly what buttons to push or topic to broach that brings us right back to who we were as kids, for better or for worse. That uncle's inappropriate Facebook posts or the in-law's passive aggression is just aggressive at this point, or a parent who never wants to talk about the real stuff, like their addiction or the divorce or how lonely anyone feels. We can find ourselves stuck in our histories, especially our family histories. And we might need a little boost to confront dysfunction, speak the truth, and find trusted people to know how to change. I'm Kate Bowler, and today on Everything Happens, we're going to look backward in order to move forward backward at our family dynamics of how we inherited stories of love and loss from our parents or grandparents or maybe even great-grandparents. How sometimes generational divides make it difficult to express what we're going through. And how locating ourselves in the webs of our families might actually give us a little permission to change. And my guest today is the perfect person to help us do just that. Julia Samuel is a British psychotherapist, and over the last 30 years, she has worked for the NHS and then in private practice. And she is the author of gorgeous and practical books like This Too Shall Pass, Grief Works, and the one I am so excited to talk to her about today, Every Family Has a Story. Julia, my friend, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I am so pleased to be seeing you. We forged a friendship in 30 minutes, but actually it was longer because I'd read your book that took like three hours. So it is funny how you can know someone from reading their words. That's so true. Thinking through someone else's brain is such a wonderful way to know someone. And you are someone with so many rich categories for thinking about um, the bigger stories that we carry. This new book you have is so wonderful and challenging and motivating and sort of horrifying because it, well, at least it, it pushes me to think beyond therapy as a kind of solo act. Like, let me tell you about my story and whatever I think of everyone else. But your book looks not just at individuals, but families. And it made me imagine people as a web. Is that a is that a good metaphor or how do you imagine it? I think it really is a good metaphor because I mean if we're lucky we are part of a family and we need family. They are the bedrock of our lives. 
when they drive us mad and when they're amazing and celebrate us and when we really hate them we need them most probably (laughs) and I think we've spent too long focusing on the individual and not enough about a web or a network we need really lots of good relationships to thrive so that you know just leaning on ourselves isn't enough not even when times are good but particularly when times are hard and that's such a deeply american story just like an open field with an individual and all of his bootstraps like there's there's so many stories that we tell especially in american culture that celebrate that kind of hearty loneliness and it's all about overcoming beyond that isn't it it's like yes getting on your horse with your gun and your hat and and just going giddy up in English that <laughs> yes. giddy up by the way would be in quite a posh voice it would be kick on kick on really <laughs> so that's the same thing but just keep going just keep yeah. going don't ask for help yeah. don't make a fuss don't make me feel bad because you're I can't help you just yeah glide past me so that I'm not, you know, demanded of or made to feel uncomfortable. But at the same time, you're really lonely and chilly up there on that horse. Yes, that's right. I imagine the Canadian version would just be like a deep, awkward politeness, like just a small wave if you happen to be... Like the Queen when she went past it. (laughs) Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. If you're going to start thinking of yourself as being part of that bigger story that you're calling us to, like, what's the right posture to begin in? I People say, you know, and then I discovered my parents were just people. And I imagine when they say that, that they are beginning to experience like maybe curiosity or there's some kind of thing that cracks them open. But what kind of, how does one begin, I suppose? One of the ways in is to think about it with curiosity, like, you know, what I'm feeling and how I am and what I understand and the beliefs I hold, they didn't start with me. Like, look up and look across and look and see what has been passed down from generation to generation. And what am I holding that is no longer really mine with this idea that the difficulty or the pain of one generation, if it isn't dealt with in that generation, the coping mechanisms or even the genetics get passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And so that we are the product of many stories. And so the strapline in my book is how we inherit love and loss, how we deal with love which is the thing that matters most in the world but also that life is difficult and challenging and scary and maddening we learn from the adults around us and they learned it from their adults and so we need to kind of really begin to see the untold stories the secrets the lies because my one of my biggest things is that what we often do as a way of protecting other people or protecting our children or even protecting ourselves, in the end becomes an armour that keeps other people out and you disconnected from yourself. 
as a historian, I'm always like loath to imagine that anything is new, but it does feel kind of modern right now, revolutionary in some ways to to talk about that kind of t- transparency across generations, right? Like I imagine many of us have parents and grandparents where it can be very difficult to approach emotional subjects if if they have a very different set of emotional expectations. They endured war, they endured depressions. So is it so first of all, is it modern to want this kind of transparency and how do we navigate the sort of generational divides we might come up against if we wanted to talk this way i mean not being as much of a as of a historian as you i don't know but what i imagine is that what we choose to hide and not talk about changes rather than kind of us having full transparency so the victorians for instance were really good at death Queen Victoria was the poster woman for death. She wore black until she was, you know, until she died. But they never talked about sex. Sex was completely disgusting and unvoiced. You know, there's a there's a, a negotiation and a, a a line you want to take of you know promiscuous honesty, which is cruelty, like saying you know I hate that hat you're wearing. I think it's ugly, which is unnecessary two important truths that we need to share so that we don't carry them alone, but also when we are suffering and normally people that suffer are hurting and not their best selves. That's the awful way that we're made as human beings. Like when you're your kind of best happy self, you draw people towards you. But when you're really had a terrible news or you're really worried about something you you tend to close down a bit because you're nervous you're angry you're kind of not your full open self I mean I think you are one of the rarities actually because you seem to be able to expand your emotional width out into the world whatever's going on but I think you do but I think it's unusual that often we kind of retreat and armour ourselves in whatever armour we use individually, which is very sort of subjective. Or, and we lash out. Like, if I'm really upset about something, I'm not kind and understanding and patient. I'm impatient and pretty horrible. Yes. Yeah. It is. Um, I remember hearing once, I think it was in, like, a history of childhood, that one of the beautiful, surprising... I think spiritually useful, but also evolutionarily useful things about childhood being the sort of generational reset button is that they begin to ask questions that we get told to no longer ask. And their curiosity kind of can break through some of that sort of calcified generational differences between us. Because thinking about the incredible, immense, devastating suffering of my grandparents, war, tuberculosis, sanitariums, foster care for my father. I mean, just devastation. And yet they're, when they narrate it, it was so, it was very tidy. And I don't think they had the luxury to feel. So they were of the generation, which is my parents' generation, your grandparents, where they really, all they could do was survive and get on. There wasn't the knowledge, but there also wasn't the emotional capacity in society. Everyone was grieving someone. Everyone was fighting a war. And so they just had to survive and multiply and shut down what they felt and keep moving. I think what's different now, and this of course isn't for everyone by any means because there are, there is sort of 
desperate in inequalities. But for those of us that are lucky enough, we do have the luxury to feel. We have the luxury yeah. to ask for help and to say that I don't understand what's going on in a way that just was not possible even probably 35 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah. Your book has these incredible case studies of families learning to negotiate that dynamic. Can you give me an example of of someone whose acute pain like required them to embed themselves and maybe a, they had to engage in a story that was their parents or their grandparents? So one of the stories was this amazing family that where the father had died by suicide. He'd um, shot himself. It was called the Rossi family. And I met the mum and their three siblings, and the three, her three daughters who were siblings. And he, had, he was an Italian policeman and he had shot himself 40 years before. And the thing about trauma is that the residue of trauma is alive and present in your brain today as it was 40 years before so his death had never been processed because yeah. as one of the things one of the things the, the mother who's incredibly brave to do this therapy with her daughters said i never dared ask how was it for you she never dared ask her children because it was unbearable to know the answer yeah. it's too you yeah. can't quite look at your children suffering when you can't fix it but of course yeah. it meant that she also then had to shut down because she had to go and earn money and she was traumatised and furious. They were now, 40 years later, challenging her and challenging themselves to deal with the trauma because it had developed lots of difficult behaviours. They had addiction problems and all sorts of behavioural problems um, in the men they sort of chose, not in other ways. But what happened was... As they were beginning to tell their story, they didn't just have one narrative each. They had a collective mm-hmm. narrative together. The mother's story was included, all three sisters' different stories, until they ha- had a coherent narrative that made sense for themselves, that so much had been hidden, and it was, I missed this, or I did that wrong, or I felt guilty. And then when they had it all together, it allowed them to have their full kind of acceptance of it and also yeah it allowed them to rebuild the relationship with their dad because a, a bit like your parents they they'd had this narrative that dad killed himself for us and poor dad and wasn't dad great and one of the sisters said everyone keeps saying how great dad was but he shot himself and he was an alcoholic so i mean really yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but but in naming the truth of totally. it they could then, they wrote him this wonderful letter, the three of them. Because I said to them, you know, their love for the person never dies. And they went, well, I can't have a relationship with him. I've only got one photograph. And But over time, they talked together and they wrote this such a beautiful letter to him because, of course, he was still very much in them and part of them. Mm. And they could see themselves in him. They had his eyes or his sense of humour. And so they healed by telling painful truth which is really what you talk about is that by facing and not hiding from painful truths we can't fix the reality of what happened but we can learn to connect and even love and allow ourselves 
the freedom from it. It traps us and imprisons us when we don't. Yes. And that they could do that work rebuilding a story that they could then live inside must have been so powerful for them. Yeah. Especially yeah. when things are when things are so far gone, I imagine it's much easier just to say, I mean, that happened so long in the past. Let me tell you about the relationship I have that's driving me crazy now. But the hard excavation must have been very intense. It was really intense, but it actually only took like eight sessions. And the thing that is so powerful is it renewed their relationship with their mother and it protected their children. So one of the things, if you want to kind of think about not passing down inherited trauma, kind of deal with it in your lifetime because you will pass otherwise shard you know suicide's like a cluster bomb it puts shards of agony in in everybody in different places but by looking at the shards and naming them and having a clearer understanding it means you don't take the flinching and the injury of the shard to your own children mm. what do you suggest for people who have incomplete stories and don't have enough information to piece it together in a way that's satisfying. Mystery is sort of, can be a terrible, maybe maybe we just have to grieve that mystery? So it's so complex. I think what we don't know can be the piece of the jigsaw that drives us completely mad, where, where our imagination can run riot and we yeah. can put in that limitless, Images, stories, blame, guilt, all the yeah. what-ifs the yeah. universe can give you. And that can be utterly crazy-making. And so the work that I do with people is you do have to grieve what you don't know. Not that you can ever fix it, but you the paradoxical theory of change. If you can at some point kind of know that you're never going to know this and you letting your imagination kind of go to it is driving you nuts that you can maybe draw an image that represents it name it you know talk about the ending of the not knowing as part of your grieving and then that can free you to begin to address what uh, what it is that is the underlying is the main is the principal thing that's happened to you because the the not knowing is can overtake the principal event When we're trying to understand our bigger family web, and maybe especially those in that system who have been unkind, maybe untrue, unfaithful, uh, I mean, maybe the reason why we're going to therapy in the first place, (laughs) I I wondered if we could talk about the limits of this kind of empathy. Because I, I remember I had an interesting um, conversation with Tara Westover. Do you remember her? She wrote that book, uh, Educated. Yeah. It's this beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I love that book. It's a Mormon. Her, she was a was I mean, she Mormon or a yes, Mormon she, survivalist, a and she yeah. experienced a tremendous amount of physical and psychological abuse as a child. And we were talking about when people say of families, "Oh, they did their best." And I said, that drives me insane, as if we've sort of taken a survey and we know that all 52 moms in this situation, quote, tried their best, five on five, five stars. And uh, and she said, oh, I actually, I do say that. I say, uh, they tried their best and it was devastating. They tried their best and it was tragic. 
And I was, I was frankly very moved by that. Like, how do we frame the, the limits of empathy, maybe? There's the Winnicott term, which is, you know, as a parent, is the good enough parent, which I think covers a lot of bases, certainly with me as a, being a failing parent. But I think when you've had a really abusive, difficult childhood, in some ways the hate does you more harm and the blame because it gets inside you and it contaminates every other feeling that you have. So that if you can find a way of giving yourself a a story, you know, the, the emotions that we have, if you can allow yourself to feel the legitimate feelings and allow yourself to be angry and upset and betrayed and all of those things, yeah. and also kind of find a way of saying, you know, they were, given who they were, the history they had and what they knew, they did the best they could. And that best was devastating for me kind of does cover it because if you just keep blaming them and keep hating them it keeps you trapped as well keeps you imprisoned Mm -hmm. I don't know if the word is forgiveness but I think it's living with and allowing for it's like the accommodation of both there were some good bits probably all of the bad bits and that you have to allow for it it sounds like there is a tremendous amount of possibility in learning to rewrite these stories? You know, emotions are transmitters of information that run through our body to give us information, basically to know whether we're safe or in danger, and also whether we're in a good good place or not. And the actual pure emotion probably doesn't last that long. It lasts about 90 seconds. But we can dig on that emotion Apparently. I mean, but what we do with the emotion is we turn it into an attack against ourselves or other people. And then we do get trapped in it. Yeah. And then it becomes lots of other things. And often we do what I call have a shitty committee. Then we're failing because we feel so awful about it. And so this one feeling of shame then becomes... I'm useless, I can't do anything, everyone hates me. So the story you tell yourself about the feeling is so much worse than the actual feeling. And the feeling is just information that if you can name it, allow it through your body, acknowledge it, and breathe, then you have choices. Then you have choices like, okay, so I feel full of shame. Where's this from? What, what do I know about this? Is this a familiar trope? Is this real? You know, what's going on? And then what do I need to do? What should I do? Yeah. Do I just let it go? I do I need to learn from it? I like the idea, though, of like a 90 second feeling. I'm really into that. Like, I mean, I bet it feels like five hours. If I had like a clock, if I had a stopwatch, though, for like shame, it would be a wonderful thing to be like, I'm just going to yeah. give myself this many seconds, and then see. It's the information that Mm -hmm. we allow the feelings to travel through our body. And if we don't pile stuff on top of them, because like when I feel shame, I felt shame last week. And I went to bed feeling quite good about something I'd done. And then I woke up feeling full of shame that I'd done it all wrong. You know, that awful feeling. It's like, 
<laughs> and you know that everybody else saw and I I was late to recognize how useless I was and and you know what I do with that is go into this awful feeling in my body where I will literally do anything to avoid anything yeah. So I have, you know, I get busy, I start emailing, but all the time there's this horrible contaminating kind of animal eating into me. But yeah. once I could really stop and pause and go, okay, all right. you know, <laughs> shame, come through. Yeah. I hate you, fucker, but come through. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There is a something that happens that changes because it's not keep having to push up to tell me. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good word too. Like that bubbling, pushing up feeling. That's exactly right. That's why I was just latching onto the temporariness that you're describing with feeling, emotional feeling. That's it's a good, it's a good reminder in thinking, especially about like tackling a complicated problem a me problem, a family problem, it feels very uphill. It would be nice to remind myself that whatever comes up, it it will not last forever. It's hard to know how to frame generational trauma sometimes for that reason. Because it it feels sort of like someone just told you that your backpack was full of rocks and you thought thought it just sort of was, was your purse for the day. I mean, like with all of these things, it's your mindset, isn't it? It's like you've been walking around ignorantly carrying rocks. Like you didn't know why you felt so heavy and why your shoulders hurt and why certain things just always scared the bejesus out of you. Yes, absolutely. And then suddenly you realise that your grandfather died by suicide and it was never told and that all these coping behaviours done to cover it up. Yeah. And that that's part of it. It's like, oh, phew, those aren't my rocks. Huh? Hang on. Yeah. I can get rid of some of those rocks. They're not mine. Let's take that off. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's ever as simple as that. But I think yeah. it can really help. That there isn't something wrong with you. This isn't yeah. just you. That we are all part of something and we're carrying our stuff and other people's stuff. Yeah. And we need other people to help us unload. And also we need to know the truth as much as we can ever know. Yes. And one of the truths is that not everything happens for a reason. Life is <laughs> effing random. I love you. <laughs> Does it? I mean, yes. it is random. It happens for no reason right. that we can ever make sense of, that we can ever give ourselves a proper reason. It just <laughs> does happen out of the blue randomly yes. and sometimes it's one person lots of terrible things sometimes only good ha- things happen to some good people f- which I can't really fully understand either to be absolutely honest <laughs> all of it you know you look at those families sometimes I look at other families and I kind of think oh how come there is literally nothing as far as I know that is breaking your day and i i love them and also it's like how come <laughs> exactly yes meanwhile i'm busy putting terrible things in the coherence machine and inventing a story that never flatters me <laughs> about why it's <laughs> happening <laughs> yes <Ugh. laughs> it's, it's, but your honesty yeah. does flatter you 
because honesty shines a light, right? And lights are illuminating and lights bring glow and they bring people. And that's what you do. You gather because of your honesty and your humility with your honesty to say hard things and let yourself feel hard things. Other people can then face their own and look at their own and they they can see how you do it. It's true. It's it's truly an incredible gift. That's, that's so nice. But the thing, what you wrote about um, the relationships that heal us made complete sense to me of how the last few years have gone. Only when I practiced being honest that I could get over the loneliness. And then yeah. the, and solving loneliness to me has been the biggest. I mean, there being no solution to almost anything, but but at least like a beautiful salve to the worst parts of being a person you wrote this absolutely gorgeous moving thing about like um it only takes one person can you tell me more about that well i just think you know the definition of being loved is being known known as you are on the inside and how you feel yourself to be with all of your frailties and fault lines and strengths and great capacities and brilliance. I think we can ignore our good things as well, but they need to be allowed. And that when someone fully sees you with all of that and you're known, that is what love is. And that they don't turn away and they don't try and squash you down or big you up or when you're looked in in the eye and known and loved for that is an amazing thing. And I, you know, one person is really enough but ideally, we do want a bit of a village. You know, we yeah. want nine. <laughs> more is better. More is more better. More is better. <laughs> yeah. And that's what was so awful about the pandemic was that people who suffered suffered more in the pandemic because of that isolation. Yeah. I mean, and that, that really caused real harm, I think, real psychological yeah. harm to, to millions of people. Yeah, that's right. The thinning of all these things that hold us up, the cutting of all of our puppet strings. You write very movingly about a family who is trying to say goodbye. It was a family trying to say goodbye in the impossibility of losing a parent with cancer. And you were walking them to the edge of a difficult grief in an impossible moment of pandemic isolation. How did you help them live inside of a story that was going to be in, feel incomplete in such a big way? Yeah, I think he's still alive, by the way. So he's... Oh, he's, really? Um, yeah. yeah. I think what I offered was the space for him and them being a third person, you know, in fact, I was like the sixth person, but being someone who's outside the family, I think that there is something about having a witness who isn't in emotionally invested with you. Mm-hmm. That is a, uh, it's like a, a holding power that allows them then to have very difficult conversations where they could hear each other because they had me 
to kind of keep them safe or to balance them. They yeah. weren't responsible for each other's distress or yeah. trying to protect each other from the pain that they were facing. And I think in voicing their fear, they were also very clearly voicing their love. And yeah. that for the for the dad is yeah. what mattered most. And that really supported him. I mean, he said, this is the worst time in my life, but also the best time in my life. That strange kind of duality. Because he really knew he was loved. That's such a um, that's such a beautiful word for the person who feels like they are the bomb that goes off. They are the one who is bringing the trauma in the front door, and and nothing can solve it. How do you manage it? I remember trying to ask my dad if. Um, you know, parents have this overwhelming desire. It's like the first thing on their mind if they see their kid in pain. Um, how can I take this on to me? Like, how can I just absorb yeah. this? I remember how, how much work I was doing in trying to wrap things up. It was just, it was such a rough time that uh, it just kept going. It was like the first two years of endless, you know, almost dying, almost 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 all the time and uh oh. so i i was i was kind of caught in that um push pull feeling where i kept trying to sort of like pump the brakes for them give everybody closure before i was done living and um remember the first time i lost to protect them in some way some, yeah then i just had some ugly terrible fight with somebody at one point my sister <laughs> and uh and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm so sorry. And my dad said, uh, oh, hon, I would so much rather you than the memory of you. And what I heard in that was mm -hmm. I would so much rather the terrible complexity than the abstract perfection. And yeah. that gave me a lot of um, permission not to, uh, not to sort of be in pain politely. But to just let the try to let the weight of what I was and was going through to be something that more than I would have to carry. Yeah. Yeah. And that in trying to protect them, you would also exclude yourself and each other. And there'd yeah. be that <laughs> presence of absence even when you were alive. Yeah. So yeah. it's better to be yeah. a messy fighting person <laughs> who's real <laughs> I mean I remember telling you my daughter had, yeah. my daughter had cancer and you know we we had some very difficult conversations when she was so angry with me at times because I was trying mm. to fix stuff or interfere and she's four you know she was 38 but it was like I wanted yeah. to go to the nursery teacher and sort out someone being mean to her and I was trying to sort out doctors or and yeah that wasn't the right thing to do but you know we're not our best self I mean that, not even that it's not not that's the wrong word it's really painful and difficult where you really yes. are there's an ongoingness to love and pain which just uh doesn't really lend itself to knowing exactly what to do it's a risky it business feels like, right yes Yes. Yes. 
And that whole idea of love being a soft skill is not. It's really, really hard. And it is the only thing that matters. It's the best medicine, right? But it is not a soft skill. It requires unbelievable endurance, patience, fury, rage, you know, because where you feel most, yeah. you feel most. So if you have yes. joy one end and <laughs> the bandwidth of love, you're going to feel fury as well. You know, it's wide. It's as big as a as, yes. a, as you get. When you write, we only fix what we face. It makes me think you are a, um, a source of deep courage, who, for especially for those of us, low, these many of us who are not exactly sure how to, find a richer story that includes our family to help ease the burden of whatever going through. So thank you, Julia. You are a, uh, you are a source of tremendous wisdom to me. And I am so glad that I met you. I am so glad I met you. I've loved our conversation and your work and all that you're doing. And I really take my hat off to you. You're amazing. (laughs) Thank you, my dear. might be still listening and thinking to yourself, yes, Kate, this sounds great. Must be nice. Except, what if we never get the apologies we deserve? Or the acknowledgement we need? Or the relationships that we hoped for? This community knows all too well what other people forget. That sometimes we don't get the happy endings we hoped for, or that we worked for. Sometimes other people just choose not to change. There's a theme, though, in Julia's book that I thought you might really like. It's about how we need one safe person. Just one. One person in our lives. They may be related to us or not, but that person can help us adapt to the traumas we've experienced. We need one person who we can trust to tell us the truth to be reliable narrators of our stories, who can help us see it clearly and know we are loved, loved, loved regardless. Because you, in all your actual problems and actual pain, are far better than any idealized version of you. And maybe that is the exact honesty that might offer us and our families the freedom we long for. I wanted to close today's episode with a blessing from our very new book of blessings. It's called The Lives We Actually Have, and the book comes out in February. So if you want to pre-order a copy, the link is in the show notes or at katebowler.com slash blessings book. And that's exactly about what we're talking about today. It's a blessing for when your family disappoints you. God. I am angry and hurt and so incredibly sad. The very people who are supposed to love me and know me best have let me down. I don't know if I'll be able to let this go or find a way forward. I'm losing my sense of home. And the reality of it fills me with a kind of fear. However big, however small, this pain always feels unforgivable. I know they're only human, 
really, I know, but their mistakes feel like they echo through me. They strike a painful chord that rings on and on, and I feel convinced all at once that I am not loved, not known, not safe. I feel small all over again. So bless me, God, when tears prick at my eyes and I feel lost to myself. Bring me home. Remind me of the places you've brought me, the person I've become, when I feel your light and peace. Forgive them for me when I can't and send some grace for this moment to keep my heart from breaking or my temper from rising or any sentence starting with, you always, you remember me when I am a stranger to myself and an outsider at my own address. All right, my loves, bless you. May you find your safe person and find some grace for yourself and others as we carry our stories of love and loss and disappointment together. See you soon. A really special thank you to our generous partners who make this work possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School and Leadership Education. And to my wonderful team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Keith Weston, Jeb and Sammy. Thank you. And I would love to hear what you thought about this episode. Would you do me a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts? It really, really means a lot to us when we get to hear what we do well and also might even do better. You can also leave us a voicemail and who knows, we might even be able to use your voice on the air. Call us at 919-322-8731. All right, lovelies, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.